1: at luckylandslots.com available to players in the US excluding Washington and Michigan no purchase necessary vgw group void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply
3: the best conversations i have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking when we're not 100% sure yet what to write
2: hopefully having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view that's kind of our job as washington post opinion's columnists i'm charles lane deputy opinion editor
3: and i'm amanda ripley a contributing columnist We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
2: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
4: On this episode of Newt's World, we have a great opportunity to listen to one of the most impressive people to serve in the Trump administration, a genuine patriot, somebody who not only was very, very close to President Trump, but I can tell you from the standpoint of my wife, Callista, when she was ambassador to the Vatican, that she thought so highly of the job that Secretary of State Pompeo was doing. He has had a great career. He previously served as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Before that, he was a member of Congress from Kansas's fourth district. He served on the House Intelligence Committee, as well as the Energy and Commerce Committee and the House Select Committee on Benghazi. Before he went to Congress, he founded Thayer Aerospace, where he served as CEO for more than a decade. He later became president of Century International, an oilfield equipment manufacturing distribution and service company. He graduated first in his class at the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1986 and served as a cavalry officer patrolling the Iron Curtain before the fall of the Berlin Wall. He also served with the 2nd Squadron 7th Cavalry in the U.S. Army's 4th Infantry Division in Part of my fondness for him is that my dad spent 27 years as a career infantryman, so I respect deeply anybody who got into that business. When he left active duty, he graduated from Harvard Law School, was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Since he left office, I have followed him very carefully because he knows so much, he's been so involved, and I've been intrigued with very specific policy positions that he's been taking and laying out for people. Mike, if I remember correctly, you grew up in California. And did you have any notion of a career track that has led you all the places you've been?
0: Oh, goodness gracious. Nude, thanks for the kind words. Of course not. The Lord has blessed us. America has been an enormous blessing to me and to my wife, Susan, our son, Nick. Uh, that's why this public service matters so much to folks like you and me. I grew up in, in Santa Ana, California. Neither uh, of my parents managed to graduate from college. But they cared deeply, and they worked hard to make sure that the three kids have a, an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, the three kids all had every chance to be successes, however we define it. And then I got lucky. I was admitted to West Point, United States Military Academy, in the summer of 1982, almost 40 years ago now, for goodness sakes. And that set the career path, the, the trajectory. And so many things have fallen the right way for me. I've certainly worked hard, and I'm committed to the things that I've been speaking about now for 10 years plus in public life but no one could ever predict that one would get the chance to be America's most senior diplomat and America's most senior spy. It's pretty remarkable.
4: You had a very successful career in business. Things were going pretty well. What led you to decide you had to run for office?
0: We were in a moment, this would have been 2009, the end of 2009, we are in a moment not unlike the one that we're experiencing now, frankly, in the United States, where we had a president in office that was truly of the core conviction that government could solve every problem and that there were just a few more dollars taken from the private sector that we could fix all the ills of America and who had a progressive agenda for the United States of America. It was impacting my employees. We ran a machine shop. First business I ran made airplane parts, ran lathes and mills, and sheet metal, fabrication components, welding. The second one was manufacturing in the oil and gas industry. It was impacting our business. My duty to take care of those employees was being impacted by a government that was running amok. It was the days of Obamacare passing, and the opportunity presented itself in South Central Kansas, and I decided I would join the team back in Washington, of this enormous class that came in in 2010, not unlike the class you saw come in in 1994, this enormous class that came in to try and reset America, consistent with the historic understandings of our founding.
4: When you look back on it, what do you think you learned in your time in the Congress?
0: A handful of things. First is I was enormous beneficiary of the fact that I was able to be on two committees that I dealt with issues that matter to every American. I was on the Energy and Commerce Committee. We dealt with these complex energy issues. And then second, I had the chance to serve on the Intelligence Committee, which gave me the baseline understandings to prepare me for the day when President Trump called and asked me to be his CIA director. I served on the Benghazi committee. I watched an America that refused to do the things it needed to do to keep its diplomats safe and secure. It's not about eliminating risk. In fact, I would argue that the State Department under my leadership probably took more risk than the State Department of times before. But when you do that, you have the concomitant duty to make sure that you do everything you can to keep those men and women safe. And I saw that we didn't do that in Benghazi that night where those four Americans were killed, and I was determined to make sure that we did everything we could to decrease the likelihood that anything would ever happen like that again, certainly on my watch.
4: So you went from a very public job in the US House and became America's leading intelligence officer. You'd already been on the Intelligence Committee, but were you surprised when you were on the inside in the executive branch at things you had not learned when you were in the Congress?
0: Tremendously so, Newt. You can't truly gain the full understanding of the scope and the scale and the mission set of the Central Intelligence Agency and, frankly, for that matter, the operational and analytical requirements of that institution so that it can provide this crisp intelligence for not only the president and the secretary of state and the vice president and other senior leaders in the Defense Department, but for senior leaders on Capitol You can't truly begin to grasp the scale of what the intelligence community has to do when you're doing that part-time as a member of the intelligence community. So I was surprised. I was, in almost every case, pleasantly surprised by the professionalism and the esprit and the capabilities at the CIA when the leadership was prepared to turn them loose to do that good and important work overseas.
4: I remember you raised the morale and you, I thought, did a great job of moving the agency. And then the president reached out for you and asked you to switch to a more public and in some ways even more complicated assignment as secretary of state. That must have been quite an experience to walk into the State Department building and realize how many things were now on your shoulders.
0: Newt, it was an enormous burden that I could feel. The moment the president first suggested that he might nominate me to be the secretary of state, your point's well taken. Today is a Awesome job. No press, no fuss, no muss. You're not in the president's lane, right? You're doing intelligence collection. It's a purely fact-driven organization, and it's out of the public light. When you become Secretary of State, those problems that are above the fold every day on the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are yours for the most part, if they're overseas, and the responsibility to deliver to President Trump every day a set of proposals, a set of theories A set of executable actions that we could take to make America stronger and more secure was an enormous burden that I could feel every moment. And all done in the public eye, all done in the public space with a workforce that has a set of ideas that are not always consistent, certainly with an administration like ours that was breaking the mold in lots of places where establishment foreign policy ideas that we've been stuck on for 20, 30, 40 years, we were prepared to try a different approach. Each of those things certainly weighed on me, but they also got me up in the morning excited to be part of an administration that was prepared every day to try and make America better and stronger and more secure.
4: Well, I was privileged to be with Callista when you and Susan visited with the Pope and you visited the Vatican and Italy. The excitement you had about going to your family's hometown up in the mountains where I gather they had basically a traffic jam because it's not out-of-town designed to have a team the size of the Secretary of State. Just for a second, as a detour, I really got a sense of your depth of heritage, of your feeling that you really, really wanted to go and visit that town, and you have a feeling for where your relatives came from.
0: It was really, truly one of the personal joys of my time of the four years. I had this chance to go visit my, the hometown. My father never had the chance to go there, he was still alive, and I wanted to see it and, and tell him about it. I couldn't have had a more gracious welcome. It was crazy. A town of a 1,000 probably had a couple thousand people there, every one of whom wanted to give me some baked good that they had made. It was truly, truly a lovely day. You'll get a kick out of this too, Newt. This is also apparently the hometown of Madonna. And so when we went into a small store, one of the vendors handed us a little gift and said, could you take this to Madonna's if we would, of course, know each other <laughs> And the I am the second most famous person from Percentro, Italy.
4: That's really great. And I have to say, by the way, that watching you work and watching Susan work with you, you were very well received by the Vatican. And I think that they had a great sense of affection for the two of you. And, you know, people sometimes focus on the tensions that may exist. I thought in your visit there was zero tension and really a great coming together between you and the Pope and the senior ministers of the Vatican.
0: It was a lovely visit. It was an important visit. Two things were very clear to me. One, your lovely wife, my ambassador, had done amazing work. The people in the Vatican and broadly in the diplomatic community there in the Vatican and in Rome loved her. And that benefited the United States of America tremendously. A deep commitment. She worked so hard. And for a Secretary of State who travels in, spends a day, spends a day and a half, that foundation having been laid makes all the difference in your capacity to have an effective, important, productive set of conversations. I treasured those conversations. As you know, Newt, the Vatican plays an important part in global diplomacy. We remember the days of Pope John Paul II and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, where the three of them worked together to deliver freedom to people all across the globe. The church there, the Vatican, has as a moral witness to the world is so important and it was a real blessing to me to get a chance to spend some time with the senior leadership there with the Pope himself, to work on the problem sets that can free people around the world and raise hundreds of millions of people from poverty and nourish them both physically and morally.
4: I think you've done more to elevate religious liberty and to highlight the countries that are trying to extinguish religious liberty than any person ever to occupy the Secretary of State's position. We could certainly feel it in Rome, but I've watched you since you left office, and you continue to focus on this key question of the rights of people to approach God on their own terms and not as dictated by the government. As you look back on that, how do you reflect on that issue and its centrality?
0: It became very clear to me early on when I was a member of Congress that the connection between religious liberty, the capacity for individuals to practice their faith in places around the world was important in its own right. In my role as an evangelical Christian, as a believer, the capacity for Christians around the world to practice their faith matters in individuals separate from all things geopolitical. But I also came to see the deep connectivity between those countries that were rights respecting and allowed religious freedom and America's need to intervene, or countries that presented risks to the United States and our way of life here at home. And so when I had this chance as Secretary of State, I had a great team around me, including Ambassador Sam Brownback, who was working directly on those issues. And we built out a set of understandings where Every place I went, I met with religious leaders. I met with the Grand Mufti. I met with the Ecumenical Patriarch in Istanbul. I met with religious leaders of every faith to try and convince those governments that the more space that they created for their citizens to live out their understanding of faith, the more prosperous and more secure their own nation would be. Not every leader believes that. The authoritarian regimes are trying to crush it. But I know in my heart it was the right thing, and we devoted substantial time to it. And I think that we made some real progress.
4: You hosted some of the first meetings ever on a worldwide basis. And that, frankly, fed back into Callista's job at the Vatican and gave her a real tool to convince the Vatican to look differently at the administration because of its commitments on things like religious liberty. I have to report Having watched from the embassy there, you had an amazing schedule and you were all over the place all the time. When you look back, what would you consider the really high moments, the things that you're going to say later in life, we really did change history?
0: I knew we're awful close to it to have spent a lot of time thinking about it. Three stand out for me. The first is the threat from the Chinese Communist Party was something that I think many of us knew but hadn't focused on in a way that was intentional and that meets the times. And I think we have moved the global consensus that the fundamental threat to the Western ideology, the Western rules of law, the ideas of property rights and freedom that we all hold so dear, I think we moved the world in how they think about the Chinese Communist Party. This is gonna be a long, drawn out challenge and we have to focus on it. It will be costly and I don't mean just in dollars. There'll be things that will fall the wrong way But if we don't take this seriously, if we don't respond to it, much like President Reagan was able to respond to the threats from the Soviet Union, and frankly, presidents from both parties over a period of time respond to, if we don't take the Chinese Communist Party threat seriously, we will live in a very different world 50 or 100 years from now. And so I'd put that at the top of the list. And the second one is the approach that President Trump took to the Middle East. There are multiple pieces to this. Everybody became familiar with the vision for peace that we laid out. But there were three pieces. The first was an unequivocal support for the Jewish homeland, the people in Israel. We moved to the embassy. We recognized the Golan Heights. I made clear that not every settlement was illegal. There were a whole handful of things. We allowed American citizens born in Jerusalem to say this was Israel. Simple things that were a reflection of reality. I think that strengthened the Middle East. Then it was Iran. I'm saddened even this morning to be reading that the United States is about to go back into a deal that puts American lives at risk and certainly lives of Israelis and Arabs. Iran will be back on a path to a nuclear weapon. And then the third leg of the stool was the Abraham Accords, which really flowed from this and couldn't have happened absent the policy more broadly thought about in the Middle East. Had we not responded to Iran and confronted them, had we not supported Israel, then these Arab leaders who were very bold, couldn't have made the decisions they made to recognize Israel. And it is undoubtedly the case that the Abraham Accords, MBZ and the United Arab Emirates, the leadership in Bahrain, you know, the Moroccans and the Sudanese are all falling behind that in the sense of moving in the right direction. None of those things could have happened without American leadership that was prepared to say we're not going to let the Palestinian Authority have a veto on stability and prosperity in the Middle East. So China, the Middle East, and then we talked about religious freedom this is something that I think will be lasting. Not only did we work on this abroad, but we tried to teach our diplomats that there are unalienable rights. We created a commission. We tried to go back to a central understanding of human rights and how global diplomats, and in this case America's diplomats, ought to conceive of those rights in order to be effective at increase the number of rights-respecting nations around the world.
4: I have to say, having been part of this for a very, very long time, I thought the Abraham Accords and the degree to which you really had a breakout from the sort of frozen position of the last 25 years, and I think it's part of what aroused part of the professional diplomatic establishment to frenzy because they'd all invested their lifetime in arguing that peace to the region had to come through the Palestinians and President Trump reached an understanding early on that the Palestinians wanted to destroy Israel, not find a way to peace. And therefore, if you were gonna move the ball, you had to go around them and go to the countries that had a vested interest, particularly with the rise of Iranian hostility. And I think what you and the ambassador and others pulled off was like watching the ice break after a quarter century, and it profoundly moved the survivability of Israel, and also in terms of dealing with the Iranians, it profoundly increased the strength of the collective countries in the Gulf, and I think bringing in Morocco was a master touch. And that's part of what I think it's very hard for people to appreciate in terms of the job you did. You were doing a job in something like 180 countries simultaneously. You never knew any morning which country would be at the top of the list. If you think about it, there's no other country quite like us in you know, maybe the British Empire at its very peak in the 19th century, but the number of places we care about and the number of places we're actively trying to help get to a better future is just extraordinary.
0: <laughs> you know, I confronted that every day. It requires one to be focused and prioritized. It requires one to build out a team, as no single human being can deliver on each of these. You know, the Abraham Accords are a good example. There were lots of hands, right? Jared Kushner. You mentioned Ambassador Friedman. All of our ambassadors in the region, frankly, General Abizade in Saudi Arabia, played a key role. So did Ambassador Rakolta in the United Arab Emirates. It was a real team. Secretary Mnuchin played an important role as well. All of us working on that. We were doing that multiple places around the world. It gave me the chance to try and spend my time where I could most effectively deliver incremental benefits to a team that was very focused on a mission the president set out for us. It is a complicated world. I ended the last seven or eight months working very diligently to try and deliver on the president's commitment with respect to Afghanistan so that we were never attacked there again from that soil by al-Qaeda, and yet making sure that we got our soldiers back home. I met with the Taliban, the first time an American senior leader had done that in an awfully long time, and started down a path towards peace and reconciliation. So it is, in fact, a complicated world, one that America has deep interest in making sure American leadership is present in those places, Americans will be more secure if we continue to be able to do that.
4: You also had an extraordinarily wide-ranging interest in hostages. it's astonishing how many places around the world. I know Syria was one, Iran was another, North Korea, where you played a direct role in helping release American hostages. I think people don't realize that there are individual places in the world that are potentially very, very dangerous and that Americans need to be very cautious in going there.
0: We try to put people on notice. If you go to our website, we identify risks. But it's not possible to truly appreciate when one travels the world, there is a sense I have friends who'd call me and they'd think, well, America will just come get us if we get in trouble. And of course, the world's too complex for that. We did put a real priority on trying to get those Americans who were detained home. We had a bright line rule about paying for those hostages, and yet we were able to get more than three dozen Americans home, including Pastor Brunson from Turkey, Shi Wang from Iran. And then I did have the privilege of traveling to Pyongyang and making the case to Chairman Kim that he ought to let the final three Americans that were being held in North Korea come home with me. I was able to do that. It was personally just one of the most emotional moments of my time to see those three guys. You remember Otto Warmbier had come back and had died from what they had done to him. We didn't know the health conditions of these three, and to be able to bring them home, to watch them climb out of a van on the tarmac there at the airport in North Korea, and to be ambulatory, to be able to walk around, was really quite something. You know, we are mindful that we didn't get everybody back. We worked hard on the Bob Levinson case with the Iranians. We were unsuccessful. There are still so many more that we need to make sure that we get right. We were equally mindful that we didn't want to do a darn thing that would create the likelihood that we would create an incentive for hostages to be taken. I was proud of our record of both getting folks home and decreasing the likelihood we'd have more Americans taken.
4: In that sense, the world remains very dangerous. In some parts of it, they're getting more dangerous, not less.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast...
3: work.
4: I'm curious because you did serve in the House and you did run for office and you sort of get this whole business. What's your reaction to HR 1 and the whole effort by Pelosi and Schumer and Biden to radically change our election laws?
0: It's dangerous, Newt. Dangerous and deeply antithetical to the understandings that we've all taken as givens here in the United States, right? We take as givens that our elections are run by. State officials that our election rules are set by state law and that you know we have county boards that do the canvassing in the county i lived it you lived it all too right we saw these county election officers perform their function they want to radically change the way we elect officials and they want to do so in a way that will have an unmistakable tilt towards progressive policy i hope hr1 doesn't see the light of day in the united states senate I'm, i'm counting on that it would fundamentally alter the balances that are so important to our republic, to our democratic understanding of the United States of America. I've, I've talked about this multiple times. I also talk about it in the context of watching how other countries do it. I've seen lots of elections now all across the world. There is no way that the United States should go down a path of HR one. We will end up looking more like countries that have elections without outcomes that we can transparently understand as being accurate and reflective of the people's will. And we've got to get our hands around this voting integrity issue. We all have to have confidence that when we go to the polls, our vote is counted because it's lawful. Those that aren't lawful aren't counted. And that when we get a number, we can count on that number being true. HR1 will reduce the capacity for voter integrity all across the United States.
4: You know, it's amazing to me. I think 90% of the American people believe only American citizens should be allowed to vote. And they favor being able to identify who's voting. So you have the Democrats in the House and Senate right now trying to pass a bill in which 90%, nine out of every 10 Americans, are on the other side. I have real curiosity whether or not they can sustain this. This is the Corrupt Politicians Act, and the majorities against almost every provision are astonishing. I've never seen an effort to ram through a bill that has this much base popular opposition.
0: You were always counting, right? You always knew where the head of the American people was. This mattered when you were the Speaker of the House. You could do a few things that might be marginally the minority, but you knew you couldn't ram through big things against big majorities, and yet they're trying to run the gauntlet. It is so rarely the case that I meet someone who articulates a vision that says, sure, you shouldn't have to show a driver's license or an ID when you go vote. It's so fundamental to who we are. We show driver's license when we go to the airport. I did that just two weeks ago. This is so basic. and Americans just get this. Your point is both a common sense one that gets to our founding, as well as one of pure politics, which says hard to imagine how the progressive left believes that this is something that they will be rewarded for by creating a path for corruption in our political system. This is something that the American people will reward them for.
4: When you take that and you take, you know, critical race theory and you just keep going down this list of things that they're pushing, I know you've seen the new commercial for the CIA, which... I have to confess, the first time I saw it, I kind of thought maybe it was a Saturday Night Live portrait. It was so over the top. And it kind of makes you wonder who it's going to attract to the next generation of CIA agents.
0: Dude, I'm all about diversity. We want a wide range of ideas. I liked hiring kids from rural Georgia and western Kansas, people with work ethic, with integrity, with character, with a wide range of diverse views on the world. But, man, that thing's crazy. (laughs)
4: Yeah, I think that's (laughs) – I
0: I heard someone say that they've actually had a lot of attention. I have no doubt that's true. You know what that security clearance process is like. We'll we'll see what that ends up looking like. The thing that was so disturbing, and I've seen now two of these, is there's no discussion about America and patriotism and the central understanding of who we are as Americans. It's all about division and what little subgroup I might be from. This is radically at odds with the way that the CIA operates, and indeed all American institutions ought to operate. I watched it too, and it saddens me to think that our institution, the Central Intelligence Agency that does so much important work, has now just become focused on these things that are deeply disconnected from its core mission set.
4: I found it fascinating, and I think it tells you about the driving force of the woke left in this administration. Let me ask you at a practical level, we're chatting during the period of the largest pipeline in the East being closed down by a cyber attack, probably with ransomware. I'm really disturbed, and I've looked at this stuff since the 80s. We're really, at the present time, not capable of figuring out who's doing it, intervening and causing them enough pain that they quit doing it. This is a continuing pattern. and. It may well be that they are either private sector in Eastern Europe or that they are Russian-supported private sector. But, I mean, shouldn't we be very concerned about the level of cyber vulnerability that we have?
0: This is very serious business. No, you're right. I remember when you were looking at the risks, not just from cyber, from EMP as well, protecting this critical infrastructure, our financial system, right? The ability to conduct financial transactions, in this case, moving energy across the country. There are multiple components to this. One is the capacity just to secure these systems. This appears to have been an attack on an administrator system. They get to an operational system where they can actually turn valves and gates. You can imagine at various transition points along the way, they could do real damage. We've been working hard. And the private sector, frankly, has invested a lot of money in this as well, protecting those systems. But defense is hard to play. Second thing that this clearly demonstrates, this was something on the order of 40-plus percent of refined product that was being moved around the country so gasoline mostly the absence of redundancy in that system presents real risk and when you propose huge regulations on providers of these services they're going to go single thread and when you have single thread a single point of failure the risk that the hacking guys can get a hold of it and do real harm to the american economy increases exponentially i remember you'll remember this too newt the folks in the northeast you had cheap natural gas and you couldn't get it to them because they had some crazy idea that this was an environmental problem to move gas lines up and through the northeast. So they were paying two and three and six times the price for their electricity at the outlet as people all across the rest of America because they wouldn't allow there to be multiple points of diverse energy sources. So I always think of redundancy and diversity of sources as being critical to protecting the United States from these kinds of threat. And then the last thing, new, and this gets complicated – But the United States for 20 years has been very reluctant to impose costs on actors like the ones that engage in this activity. We have the capability to do it. These responses should be more robust and more real, and we should have more clarity about them because it's one thing to respond and take down a particular actor. As you know, in justice systems around the world, there's a deterrence component to the punishment as well. And we need to find and use the tools that we have to punish these people In ways that others can see that it's not something they want to repeat, a path they want to go down, that there will be real costs imposed on them. And I think we need to rethink how it is we impose costs on these bad actors.
4: To what extent do you think these are primarily sort of criminal gangs? And to what extent is that just a cover for state based activities?
0: So it's the case that there are a handful of times that I saw where it was just criminal actors. But when it came from, places like Russia, we found that there was almost always a nexus to some element of the government itself. Sometimes that was in the form of encouragement or acquiescence, sometimes even deeper and broader. And so while I don't know the particulars on this, I've not been read into what took place here, we should look long and hard, and especially if it emanated from Russia, we should make every effort to understand the connection to the Russian government. And if so, it becomes even more imperative that real costs are imposed.
4: Let me ask you one last topic, which is the opposite of your foreign policy focus. You've been out crisscrossing the country and getting very, very warm reception from a lot of people. Since you've been home and have been focused on America, what are you learning from the American people that has sort of surprised you?
0: If you watched the mainstream news today or picked up the New York Times this morning, the American people get the joke about these news outlets. They know they're not being told the real truth about what's going on in America. They are deeply concerned about the growth of government, about how their kids and grandkids are going to pay all this money back. I hear it every place that I go. You know, I've been traveling in a world where When you travel in certain states, everybody's wearing a mask, and in other states, it's as if COVID never happened. They are deeply concerned that this whole effort was politicized and was used to control people. And when I talk to people who are in churches across America, they are deeply concerned that for the first time in a long time, the government stepped in to deny them the ability to practice their faith and to worship in the way they chose. Right here in the United States of America, they are concerned about this government overreach and they want it to stop. I don't know if I was surprised by that, Newt, but the clarity with which the American people can see that we have leaders now in both the White House as well in both houses of Congress that are intent on creating power to government and not allowing people to live their lives in the way that they would prefer.
4: Well, and I do think in that sense the whole experience both at the federal and at the state level has been one of, at times, almost capricious government behavior that, you know, where you have Governor Whitmer saying nobody can use their boat while her husband goes out and takes the family boat out, or Governor Newsom saying nobody can go out to eat dinner while he goes to French Laundry. There's a whole pattern there of people going, wait a second, how stupid do you think I am?
0: You can't dance at weddings in Washington. Yes, the list goes on.
4: Yeah, it's just amazing. Well, listen, I hope you'll come back and chat with us again, because I think you have a great future. I think you're one of the preeminent leaders who came out of the Trump administration. And you have a unique view of both the United States and of the world. And I think that you're going to continue to be listened to and that your stature is going to continue to grow. So I appreciate you taking this kind of time to chat with me.
0: Thanks. I'll absolutely come back, Newt. Bless you. Say hi to Callista. So long.
4: I'll do it. Thank you. Take care. Newt Schwald is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.